Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today's show is all about lobster, especially the early life stages of the species when lobsters are no bigger than the tip of your finger. We're going to get into the science a bit on this episode of Coastal Conversations because the research questions asked by today's guests may very well shed some light on the success of the lobster fishing industry into the future. Let me start by giving some context here. We know that the Gulf of Maine is warming, which means species within its waters need to adapt to a changing environment. We also know that, from an economic perspective, lobster is the most important fishery in Maine and one of the most important in the nation. As a result, lobsters have been studied a lot. But with a changing environment, new questions emerge. And with the stakes so high economically, those questions become important not just for the science or for fisheries management, but for our coastal communities as a whole. So today we dive into some of the lobster science being explored by a new lobster research and extension network called the American Lobster Initiative. Extension, for those not familiar with the term, refers to the outreach that brings research results to coastal communities and industry, while at the same time bringing community and industry needs back to the scientists so they can try to answer relevant questions. To help us wrap our brains around lobster science today, we're joined by four young researchers. These four are still early in their careers and in some cases still working on their PhDs, but each of them is helping set the stage for how to do lobster research now while the ecological world around Maine's iconic fishery is rapidly changing. Before we introduce our guests, I wanted to let our listeners know that due to continued COVID-19 limitations with in-person interviews, this show was pre-recorded on October 28, 2020, so we won't be taking any calls today. Let's start by having everybody introduce themselves, and why don't we start with Amalia? Hi, I'm Amalia Harrington. I'm a Sea Grant Extension Associate here at Maine Sea Grant. And I'm also the project coordinator for the Northeast Regional American Lobster Initiative. And let's go with Andrew. Hi, my name is Andrew Good. Uh, I am a PhD candidate in oceanography with the University of Maine. Uh, I'm also a lifelong lobsterman. Welcome aboard, Andrew. And Alex. Hey, I'm Alex Asher. I'm a marine biology PhD student at the University of Maine uh, and also the Darling Marine Center. Great. And Ben? Uh, I'm Ben Gutzler. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Wells Reserve in Wells, Maine. So it's great to have all of you here. I'm excited to talk with you guys about all things lobster. 
um, you guys are each doing your own independent research related to lobster, but you're interrelated to each other and to many other uh, researchers throughout the Gulf of Maine is my understanding through a larger research project. So let's start with having Amalia give us the overview of what that project is, and then we'll dive into um, learning a little bit more from our researchers. Yeah, so the Sea Grant American Lobster Initiative is a, a larger regional program that's funded through the National Sea Grant College Program. And so this is a regional effort that's trying to understand knowledge gaps about American lobster in a changing environment. So the initiative's overarching goal is really to increase the industry's resilience to all different aspects of ecosystem change. So thinking about the biological, the economic, and the social impacts. So the initiative started in 2019 and includes um, a bunch of research projects. So we have 16 total research projects that our other guests are gonna talk about. Um, but we also have a regional extension program where we work with uh, seven of the Northeast Sea Grant programs to do both locally focused outreach with citizen science and stakeholder engagement, as well as try to think more regionally and share the findings from the research side of the initiative with the larger community across the Northeast. So we're really trying to share the um, products and information generated from this regional initiative um, with industry stakeholders and resource managers from Maine all the way down to New York. And so you, so the initiative is looking at um, sort of the larger questions related to changes happening with the lobster population and the environment in which the lobster lives. Um, is that sort of the bigger picture scope? It sounds like there's a ton of different projects happening and the ones that we're gonna be talking about today are just a few within a larger effort. Yeah, that's exactly right. So all of the projects, whether it be research or extension, the underlying theme is trying to understand lobsters in environmental change. So we're thinking about lobster biology and adding to the knowledge base to some of the, the data gaps and knowledge gaps that we have there as well as trying to think about what uh, climate change might mean for um, industry members, people who fish, rely on lobster for their livelihood. You know, in Maine, this, lobster's a really big deal, right? So it's important to our economy as well as our way of life. So really trying to communicate with people who rely on lobster, what we might expect as the environment continues to change and these um, animals experience a changing environment and how they, how they might adjust down the road. And so the information that comes out of the research um, then helps us figure out how to better manage lobsters. Yeah, so it's important for not only the resource, but also for the end users who rely really heavily. So not just the lobstermen, but you know, processors, dealers, tourism, everything in Maine that depends on lobster. We really wanna help provide more information about what a changing environment means for our way of life here in Maine. Interesting. Um, I want to go straight to Andrew because Andrew, I think you are the one in your introduction who said that you um, have been a lobsterman um, for a long time, but you're also a researcher uh, on lobsters. And so I would love to get your story. How did a lobsterman get into research and, and what brought you to this work? So uh, when I was growing up, I grew up in a primarily touristy town and my father had the foresight to say you could either work in a shop or you could learn trade and some of my family being 
you know, people that work on the water, not necessarily lobstermen, but use, you know, utilizing natural resources to make a living. Um, that was a natural in for me. And I started when I was probably about 11 years old and learning the natural environment, being in the natural environment made me, it piqued my interest in understanding it more. And I had a family friend who is a professor emeritus now at the Darling Center. And he knew of my particular interest and suggested that I apply to University of Maine for my undergraduate program. I took his advice at face value, applied only to UMaine, and I've been here ever since, did my undergrad here, and started my PhD in 2017, and I've loved every minute of it. That's great. That's great. What a, what a, you're, you're in a, a unique position, um, I would imagine, where you can really see things from the perspective of someone whose livelihood is dependent on the animal that you're also studying. Yeah, it's a very interesting dynamic because especially when I have to write papers for publication, I have to disclose you know, any conflict of interest that I may have. And yes, I do have a conflict of interest. I am part of this industry, but I try my best to be objective as, as much as possible and try to wear both hats but, and see both sides of the same coin, but also play devil's advocate where it's necessary. And it sounds like you also maybe are a father. I think I'm hearing an occasional little voice in the background. <laughs> voice, maybe some cartoons. Yeah, we'll hear it periodically. Well, it'll be, I'm looking forward to hearing about your research. Um, how about, let's see, how about we ask um, Ben to give us your story? How did you get interested in doing your work in the world of lobsters? Well, I, I must uh, confess that uh, Andrew has a much more true Mainer background than I do. Uh, my family was summer people. Uh, we have a place on the coast on the Pemaquid Peninsula that I've been going up to since I was literally a few days old and um, getting turned loose to go play in tide pools and look under rocks and pet the wildlife uh, has sort of been a lifelong thing for me. Um, and it's, that's, what I enjoy. So if I can figure out a way to make a living doing that, so much the better. Um, both my parents are professors, so I was sort of doomed to academia from the get-go, uh, which means that, you know, I've sort of tried to channel those energies into uh, learning about, you know, what it is that lobsters do all day, because they're fascinating and delicious. It's always amazing to me when I ask people sort of their story of how they got into their work, how childhood has such an impact on us. Um, Alex, how about you? What is your story? It's actually kind of funny. You just mentioned childhood. So I, I was about to start off. I grew up in Rochester, New York, which other than the Great Lakes is pretty much just totally landlocked. And I, I never lived on the coast. Um, and so I don't really, I don't know where the spark of marine biology came to for me. I was always really interested in biology and zoology in general. Um, I think when I was a kid, we went to the Galapagos once and that really uh, was pretty uh, formative for me. Um, so when I was applying to schools for college, I only applied to places that had good marine biology uh, programs. Um, and actually I came to lobster, not necessarily 
because of lobster, but because of larvae. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I was really interested in larval dynamics uh, and I had a really good undergraduate mentor who kind of took me under his wing um, and got me interested in, in, into my own sort of uh, undergraduate research experiences with larval clownfish and gobies. Um, and then when I was looking for a, a PhD program, uh, my advisor, Rick Wally, had, was very upfront about his interest in larvae, uh, albeit with lobsters rather than fish. Um, but I thought it'd be, you know, nice little change of pace from a tropical fish to a uh, less tropical invertebrate. Great. Great. Oh, that's going to be interesting. Um, and Amalia, you, um, you recently got your PhD, I think, in the last couple of years. How did you get into lobster work? You've been doing lobster work for a long time, too. Yeah, so I, um, I got my PhD from the University of Maine in 2019. Um, so I finished a couple of years ago, and then I did a postdoc, um, also looking at um, some stuff similar to my to my PhD work, which is really um, similar to what everyone on the all the researchers here is doing. Um, really thinking about climate change impacts on lobster. So my research interests really align well with a lot of the research projects going on underneath the American Lobster Initiative. So it's like really kind of tied me into that. Um, and so I'm also from um, a non-coastal state. I grew up in Michigan. Um, but I got into marine biology actually because I saw a, a special on deep ocean vents. <laughs> so not lobster related at all, but when I was in eighth grade, I was like, yes, I want to do something related to the ocean. And so similar to Ben, he didn't mention it, but uh, we have a similar background in doing spiny lobster research first before coming to the real lobsters, the clawed lobsters in Maine. Um, so I'm I'm really excited about how lobsters interact with their environment, specifically in, in a changing environment. But what really um, has taken me to my, my new position is kind of translating that to end users and really working more closely with the general public and industry members, management, and really trying to be the connection between research and people that rely on the results from what researchers are doing, but don't necessarily have the full understanding and the scientific background to really weed through the details. So that's kind of where I am right now, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's great, Amalia. And you're gonna help us for the next hour of today's show, um, translating the science, right? Um, and so one of the first questions I wanna ask you, Amalia, is what is, um, what is significant about the research that this team on the radio here today is doing um, and, and sort of as a subcomponent of some of the other lobster research that's happening in the region? Sure, so um, at least in, in some aspect, um, all of the researchers here today are doing work with larval stages. So trying to understand when lobsters are really small, what's going on, um, how they're experiencing their environment and what that might mean down the road. So. We know a lot about larger adult lobsters. So what we're thinking of, like when you go to the grocery store and you buy something to eat, that's an adult lobster, right? You can see it, it's really big. You can put something on it to track it and see how it's moving. But we're talking about really small animals um, with the larval stages. So they're really hard to find. They're really hard to see unless you spend 
a lot of time out there. Ben spends some time swimming and following them, or you can do plankton toes, which Alex has done to try and, you know, survey the water column where they are. But I think what's really great about this group of folks here on the call today is we have a, a good variety of what kinds of larval work that the initiative is kind of working on. So we've got some modeling from Andy, who's going to be, you know, really tying in and looking at these larger scale patterns of movement of larval lobsters. We've got Ben who's looking at swimming and, and kind of understanding the physiology of, of lobsters when they're about to settle. And then Alex is really trying to think about the diet of larval lobsters. So what are they eating and how does a changing um, planktonic environment, what their prey might be changing in the context of a changing environment, what that means for them. So um, there are a lot of different aspects of the initiative that people are looking at, but really larval ecology is sort of this black box that we still don't have a full understanding of when it comes to lobsters. So these three guys are really doing a great job at trying to fill some of those gaps. That's super interesting. Um, let's let's start maybe with Alex. Um, and I'm thinking of starting with Alex because um, I think that I understood that you are uh, focusing on what it is that larvae eat. Um, so maybe um, before you jump into the topic of food, um, can you also help us understand the basic life cycle of the lobster um, in terms of like, how long before the, the eggs hatch and then how long do they float around as lar larvae before they sort of drop back down to the bottom and start life as the lobsters like we know them? So obviously they start out as eggs and in the American lobster, the eggs are held underneath the tail. Um, and that can sometimes be referred to as being in berry because um, the eggs look like little berries. Um, and they will generally extrude those eggs uh, sort of like early fallish, maybe even late summer um, and hold on to those for nine to 11 months. Um, and then those eggs then hatch starting, depending on where you are uh, along the coast. So starts out faster in the south and then it sort of moves up. There's like a wave of hatching off as you move north and um, they'll hatch off more or less late spring or early summer, depending on where you are, um, starting off then, and then sort of hatch throughout the summer. Um, and then you have the larvae. So for larvae, there are basically, there are three larval stages and then an extra post-larval stage that are all what we would call pelagic, meaning that they swim around uh, in the water column rather than living on the sea floor like an adult uh, lobster, which we would call benthic. Um, so we start out with the stage one lobster larvae, uh, which are kind of look like little bugs, honestly, if you look at them. Those, the first two stages at least, if you look at them and you didn't know what they were, you, you probably wouldn't recognize them as a lobster. Um, stage three is then getting to a little bit more of a developed stage. And at that point, you might be able to tell that it's a lobster. And then stage four is the post larva. And at that point, they're like, little lobsters that swim around, um, that sort of zip about. Uh, we also call that the Superman stage sometimes because they like to swim around with their claws sort of above their head like Superman. That stage, the Superman lobsters, that's when they're swimming. That's when they're not, in the, in the earlier larval stage, they're floating around the water column kind of at the mercy of the currents, correct? Yeah, they're swimming as well, but they're not very good at it. <laughs> 
Um, and maybe Ben will talk a little bit more about how good they are at swimming. Um, and, and the duration of that larval phase, each different phase is heavily reliant on temperature. Uh, there can be a lot of variation in how long it lasts based on temperature. Um, you might say about a week for stage one, then maybe about two-ish weeks for stage two, um, and then maybe another week or two for stage three and a week for stage four. Um, like I said, it, it can be pretty variable based on temperature, um, very variable. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. Our show today is about lobster research in a changing environment. The person who was just talking there was Alex Asher, a PhD student in marine biology at the University of Maine, giving us the basic overview of the lobster life cycle. The research we are featuring today is especially focused on lobster larvae. In addition to Alex, you're also hearing from two other researchers paying attention to lobster larvae. They're Andrew Good, a PhD candidate in oceanography at the University of Maine, and Dr. Ben Gutzler, a postdoctoral researcher at the Wells National Estuarine Research Reserve. And finally, we're also talking today with Dr. Amalia Harrington, a Marine Extension Associate with Maine Sea Grant, who's coordinating a large lobster research and extension project throughout the Northeast U.S. Before we get back to Alex, I just wanted to remind you that we're not taking any calls today as this show was pre-recorded. So let's get back to Alex and hear about the specifics of his research on lobster diet and the relationship between larval lobster and the abundance and quality of their food source. Um, this is kicked off by uh, research um, by one of our collaborators, um, Josh Carlone in New Hampshire. Um, and he found that there's a really strong relationship between the abundance of post-larval lobster larvae uh, and this little um, zooplankton called Calanus conmarchicus. Um, so Calanus is a zooplankton uh, that's extremely important for the Gulf of Maine uh, and sort of northerly Atlantic latitudes in general. So it's a copepod, which is um, like a small zooplankton crustacean. Uh, and the thing about Calanus is they have really, really good like energy storage. They're filled with lipids, which is like fatty acids, uh, and they're really energy dense. So they're incredibly important um, for the base of many Atlantic food webs. So for instance, the North Atlantic right whale uh, is very dependent on Calanus. And we know other like fish such as herring can be very dependent on them as well. Um, and there's this idea that uh, because of the relationship, how closely post-larval abundance um, follows the abundance of Calanus marchicus in New Hampshire, that it could potentially also be a food source for larval lobsters. And so you're trying to identify how important the Calanus food source is. Um, yeah, potentially. Um, remembering that this is a correlation uh, and that old statistical mantra that correlation doesn't imply causation. Um, and really they're, they're three possibilities between what we're seeing with the correlation between Calanus and lobster larvae. One is that it's completely meaningless and it's just sort of random happenstance. Two is that post-larval lobsters are eating Calanus. And the third one, um, which actually might be more towards where I lean, and I think different people have different um, opinions, uh, which is that Calanus, like I said, is, is a very important part of the Gulf of Maine um, ecosystem. And so it might just be a really good indicator of the health of the ecosystem in general. Um, 
I mean, lobster larvae feed very heavily on zooplankton in general, we know. Uh, and so the abundance of callinus might just mean in years where there are really good amounts of phytoplankton and zooplankton, we'll probably see a lot of callinus as well. Mm. So it might just be a sort of co-correlate. Interesting, interesting. Um, let's go with Ben. Let's see, Ben, you were looking at how the lobster larvae drifts around the water column and how it swims. Yeah, so the project I'm involved with uh, is actually kind of cool um, because it really actually meshes very nicely with both what Alex is doing and what Andy is doing. Lobsters are very able to figure out what temperature the water is at. And we know they also have a fairly specific range of temperatures they'd like to be at. What we don't know is whether or not those temperature preferences really vary between females without eggs and females with eggs. And so if females with eggs prefer a cooler temperature or a warmer temperature, depending on what stage their eggs are at, that can also drive distributional changes. Um, so what we're doing is actually this big sort of, you know, looking at several different life stages. Uh, we're looking at the preferred temperatures of uh, female lobsters with and without eggs throughout their range of development. And then also looking at how larval swimming performance might vary uh, in that last post-larval stage between warmer and cooler temperatures. So the broader thought here is that if warming water temperatures due to climate change are forcing these big ovigerous females further offshore, it might change where the larvae hatch, which would change the larval distribution in the water according to the currents. And thus, if they're further offshore at the end of the day, it's possible they might have a harder time swimming back inshore to where they the little larvae like to settle out in these sort of shallow cobble habitats that we traditionally find lots of lobster uh, juveniles in. Uh, so they have, you know, the problem with lobsters and sort of the beauty of lobsters as well is that they have this extraordinarily complicated life history and life cycle that takes them all over the place and doesn't always, you know, lend itself easily to study or manipulation because there's so many moving parts over such a broad expanse of water. So to, to follow up on what you were saying about the, so the, so the, is the larvae, do we think more offshore now than in, than it used to be? Or is that the $20 million question? We're not sure yet. Um, it's one of those ones where it's very hard to get really good estimates of all of that stuff. Um, there are a few existing data sets uh, that have done these long-term plankton toes, um, but you know, unless you're really looking for that in particular, it might just get buried in the data file. Uh, I don't offhand know uh, if there's any really reliable evidence of that yet. Um, so what we are, what we're sort of looking at is what might be driving some of that. In, in ways that would be harder to show up in a lot of those uh, standardized uh, studies. Uh, so, you know, oftentimes these big long-term plankton tow data sets are done in a very standardized way. They'll use the same stations year after year. And so the sort of the differences that we're looking at in terms of, you know, lobsters with eggs moving further offshore might not resolve in those necessarily. So if the lobsters move further offshore, that might be a difference of just a few miles, but if the post larvae are less able to swim under warmer water temperatures, they run out of gas more readily because all sorts of, you know, every chemical reaction happens faster at warmer water temperatures. So if you warm the ocean, 
you know, you're burning through their energy faster. So it's possible that those, those dif differences would be harder to find unless you're really looking at the space of just a few miles. And that also has its own challenges because, you know, a mile here or there could mean that you miss a lot of that difference. Mm -hmm. Amalia, you were going to say something? I was just going to add, I know Andrew has uh, some great um, info related to his project that could directly answer this question, but in terms of um, tying this into some of the recently funded initiative projects, there is a project that's going to start next summer that is doing specifically offshore plankton tows. So it's actually working with the offshore fleet to try and sample to see what kind of larval um, stages are out there. So it might help kind of ground truth some of the some of the ideas that have been floating around. Neat. Huh, that'll be interesting. Um, Andrew, tell us a little bit about your work. So, uh, you know, step back. Alex mentioned the life stage history of a lobster going from egg essentially to adult. And my project takes a look into how the distribution and abundance of female lobsters that hold eggs influence where larvae are. I'm going to jump in a few times to clarify, since Andrew's son has lots to say, which makes it hard to hear. Andrew was just explaining that his research looks at how the distribution and abundance of egg-bearing females influences where larvae are released and where they end up. His team's hope is to track where the females release their larvae and which environmental conditions they release their larvae into, and then simulate how fast they develop before and after they hatch and when they settle onto the seafloor. If the population of adult females is offshore, their larvae may be swept into different currents than those larvae that settled inshore. This has implications on the fishing industry down the line, defining when and where these lobster grow up into harvestable size. Andrew then continues by picking up on Ben's theme from earlier. And to get to Ben's uh, topic of whether or not we see that there are any changes in where these females are, I've used some uh, information from the uh, federal and state level trawl surveys, which go out, trawl the bottom, and count the abundance of many species, one of which being lobster. And when we look at these data over time, we can see that the abundance of these ovigorous or egg-bearing females has changed in distribution. And if we look at where they are, we can see that over a period of 20 years or so, the center of mass of these populations has shifted from being inshore at a depth of about 40 to 50 meters to being offshore at a depth of 50 to 100 meters. Again, I'll summarize for Andrew since his three-year-old just wandered back into the room with tiger roars. So in the Gulf of Maine, Andrew explains, that depth difference can mean all the difference to larvae who can get swept away even further out and may never even have a chance to settle on the bottom. I then asked if the larval stage was the riskiest life stage for lobsters in general. Here's Andrew followed by Alex. That's definitely the population bottleneck. 
they're more susceptible to pH, they're more susceptible to predators, they're more susceptible to environmental conditions as a whole. And trying to capture the dynamics of you know, the influence of a changing climate and changing ocean conditions on this life stage is a tremendous feat. And that's why there are so many people working on it because there's so many facets of it that trying to get a firm grasp on it is difficult and uh, task in and of itself. Yeah, I was just gonna say, um, lobster mothers can have tens of thousands of eggs if all of those recruited, we would be up to our knees in lobsters pretty much. So we expect a really, really tiny percentage of those to actually survive. Um, and that's why recruitment can be so interesting because you know, even a small change to the amount of lobster larvae which successfully recruit makes a really, potentially really big difference to the population we see later on. So what I would love to hear from you guys a little bit is how you go about researching the various areas that you're into. So are you out on boats? Um, I think I heard that Ben sometimes swims with larval lobster. Are you in the lab? Um, are you, uh, we heard a little bit that Andrew does some modeling. So um, where, how, how do you collect your data? How do you do your work? Ben, tell us how you go about your research. Um, so the swimming with the larvae that got mentioned is we have developed uh, a device that's basically like a little plexiglass, you know, marionette frame uh, that we can suspend an individual post larva in the middle of um, and film it. And we deploy that over the side of a boat and you know, the, the camera captures both the direction the post larva is swimming and also a compass. So we can get an idea of which direction the larva is swimming. You know, because one of the things we don't know about is we know that they swim, but we don't actually know if they swim directionally. It would make sense, you know, why else would you have this very impressive swimming capability? But whether that's actually homing in on the coast or they just pick a direction and go, we don't know. So we're trying to work that out with this, which is sort of in very preliminary stages yet. Um, the other stuff I do is actually in the lab. So that's where I was this morning. Um, so we built a big long tank uh, that we can sort of ask these female lobsters what temperature they want to be at. So it's this big trough with a bunch of little zones in it that we can individually climate control. So we can set one end of the tank up to you know, 20 degrees Celsius uh, and one end of the tank down to 10 degrees Celsius um, and sort of ask the lobster, what temperature do you wanna be at? The Gulf of Maine sort of has summer average up around 16 degrees for the last few, few years. And that seems to be a really happy spot for lobsters. So we can sort of ask these female lobsters what temperature they wanna be at. And thus, you know, looking at that, we can start to look at the temperatures of the overall Gulf of Maine and say, all right, if you were a female lobster, where would you want to be? Are you going to be moving further offshore or closer inshore? The other thing we do is we have these sort of circular tanks that if you've ever seen a jellyfish exhibit at an aquarium, it's very similar to that because most larvae are pretty small and not the brightest. So they tend to get stuck in corners if you give them corners to get stuck in. Um, and so if you have these circular tanks, you can set up a, a flow regime that makes them sort of swim, but without letting them get stuck and stuff. So we've been testing them and seeing, you know, how long they can swim at 
uh, different temperatures, as well as then looking at how much of their body lipid content gets used in that process uh, at these different temperature regimes as well. So this is sort of lab-based stuff to assess where the, the, the females would like to be and how long and how good the larvae are at swimming at both sort of ambient and elevated temperatures. Hmm. Interesting. Alex, tell us a little bit about your methods. Yeah, I, I mean, I, my methodology is kind of a mix of both field and lab. Um, I think it's kind of a, a nice way to do it because um, you lose some things in the field that you can get in the lab and, and vice versa. Um, so with the larval diet study, uh, a lot of what we're doing is lab work in that I'm literally dissecting larvae and looking at their stomachs. Um, but obviously those larvae have to be collected from somewhere. Uh, and we kind of source those from a couple different places, um, collaborators like the, the uh, Department of Marine Resources helps us sometimes. Um, and uh, a company called Normando Associates New Hampshire helps us out as well. Um, but this summer we were also out uh, on the um, IRC, which is the Darling Marine Center's boat, uh, doing our own zooplankton and uh, lobster toes, to try to catch larvae and zooplankton. Um, those larvae, um, for my project at least, th this is feeding into a couple different projects, but the, uh, the, the interest for my project is I really need to see, I, I'm interested in knowing whether larvae are starving in the natural environment. And to know whether larvae are starving, I have to know what larvae are doing in the natural environment. I can't just look at things in a lab. Um, so what I've done is that over this summer, uh, I raised larvae at the Darling Marine Center so I raised them in a totally controlled lab environment um, and I raised them from stage one to stage four and half of them I fed a lot. I just kept like dumping zooplankton that I would catch outside uh, into their enclosures and half of them I would starve completely. And what that does for us is it sets up a benchmark. So we've been talking a little bit about this idea of lipids so lipids are important because they're, they're a really important energy source. So if we then take the larvae that I raised over the summer uh, and we analyze their lipid content, we can see how, mon how many lipids you would expect to see in a really well-fed larvae and how much you would expect to see in a not very well-fed larvae. So if you have a lot of energy, you can move around a lot. Potentially you're swimming all over the place, catching things to eat. Um, and surviving through to consecutive uh, stages of development so that you survive through to recruitment. If you have low levels of lipids, um, then potentially you have to, <clears throat> you're not able to swim around very much. You might not be able to catch more food that way. Uh, and so you probably won't survive uh, is the hypothesis. So if we have this really good benchmark in our lab reared larvae of larvae that were fed very well and larvae that were starved, uh, and we see the lipid content in each of these groups, we can then catch natural larvae and compare them to those groups and see whether they're more similar to starved larva or really well-fed larva. And that will give us an idea of whether larvae in a natural environment uh, are more starved or well-fed. Which then sort of extrapolates to the how much zooplankton is in the water column, how much food source is available to them in the wild, 
Right. So the way this all ties in um, is you, we expect if uh, Cal if we were talking about that copepod calanus earlier, uh, if calanus is decreasing and either it's an important food source for larvae or it's just a really good indicator of how much food is available in general, if that's declining, then we might be expected to see more starving lobster larvae. Mm -hmm. Um, so this, this experiment kind of helps us uh, test that hypothesis. That was Alex Asher, a PhD student in marine biology at the University of Maine, talking about his research on lobster larvae. You're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. I wanted to remind listeners that we're not taking any calls today as this show was pre-recorded. Today, our guests are helping us understand how lobster larvae swim and feed, and how research methods can help us understand how they get from larvae to the adult lobsters that drive so much of Maine's coastal economy. Our other guests on today's show include Dr. Ben Gutzler, a postdoctoral researcher at the Wells National Estuarine Research Reserve, Dr. Amalia Harrington, a Marine Extension Associate with Maine Sea Grant, and the Northeast Regional Lobster Extension Project Coordinator, and Andrew Good, a PhD candidate in oceanography at the University of Maine. We'll pick back up with Andrew, who explains his work using computer models and how he draws from multiple sources of data, including other researchers' work, to make sense of how the natural environment impacts larvae. I asked Andrew to start by describing how computer models work. A model is a way of taking a, an idea. So say for our instance, we're tracking or simulating the movement of larvae in the ocean. So it's taking that idea and seeing how a computer can actually do that. So for my case, there have been um, ocean models that have been developed by other groups that map out the coast, map out the ocean, <clears throat> and make these little cells in a computer world that mimic what the ocean should be doing using direct measurements from inshore, offshore, satellite, or other means. They recreate what the ocean does using fundamental physics as well as other processes match those to the existing data. And then using those models, we can start asking questions. We can start saying, what if we do this? What if these changes happen? How does that impact the results? And what does that mean for species A, B, C, and in this case, lobster? So it's a, it's a system to try to tease out how when you change one factor, it might have an effect on the other factors. Absolutely. So when Alex and Ben were talking about field measurements. There are only so many ways that you can go out and sample in the field, and there's only so far you can go, and there's only so much you can do with so much money. Computer simulations and models can take these smaller surveys or observations that are done by Benin's team or Alex and his team, and take those relationships and extrapolate them to an area that could not feasibly be surveyed and try to get a better idea as the big picture rather than these focused 
objectives, which are very important, but they feed into one another. One of the things that I find so fun about working with lobsters, uh, especially up here, you know, clawed lobsters, as opposed to some of the spiny lobsters I worked on for my master's degree, is that there is just so much information about their basic existence and what they do all day and how they interact with the world around them that we just don't know. Uh, and in part, that is because of the limitations of human effort and the fact that they live in a deep, dark, and very cold world where most people are uh, not too thrilled about sticking their head for extended periods of time. So we necessarily have to rely on these models because you know, I, I can't go count lobsters on the bottom of the Gulf of Maine way the heck out to sea. Uh, so we have to get these indirect ways of measuring that, but that just extends all throughout their life history. So there's so much that we just still need to learn, which means that even for those of us who uh, tend to, you know, act like a vampire seeing a crucifix when it comes to, you know, math and models, you know, e the, even uh, we have a role to play here in the sense of I can go out and, you know, try and figure out what these critters do and then pass that information off to help inform the models. So it, it's this nice little e scientific ecosystem of sort of how we all interlock and make all the studying work as well. And the thing is with lobster, you know, the American lobster is one of the most well-studied organisms in the US or world for that matter. And even though it's one of the most well-studied organisms, it's the US's most valuable single species fishery there are still so many things that we don't know. And some of them seem so fundamental. We, we don't know how often they eat, for example, in the wild. Considering that we bait traps, <laughs> that would be seem to be a logical thing to know. It's so interesting to hear you guys talking about how much we don't know about all of these questions and all the different parameters that Andrew's putting into the models. And, and Ben, a minute ago, you said, we don't even know what they eat depending on the larval stage, you know, which I think is so fascinating. Um, and uh, Amalia, I wonder with your eagle eye view to the diversity of research that's happening on lobster in the Gulf of Maine, can you share with us a little bit what you are seeing as some of the really important questions that we don't know the answer to? We all know that lobsters are you know, we're really dependent on the lobster industry, but help us kind of connect the relevance to trying to answer some of these questions about the pieces that we don't know about lobster. Yeah, so a lot of the, the biology-faced research projects, so kind of what these guys are working on and some of the other researchers are really doing a, a great job at trying to tackle the huge list of questions we still have about early life history. So when they're, they're little tiny lobsters, larvae, and then recently settled, as well as reproductive biology and kind of understanding what's going on with the females while they're, they're going through their reproductive stages. Um, but something that's really exciting about this initiative is um, we have a, a new project that's really focused on the social aspect of the fishery and a changing environment. Um, so really trying to think of um, social indicators of change. So we have a lot of these really great biological tools that we have, like we have changing temperatures. We know that disease, for example, relates to abundance later on and thinking about the fishery and you know shell disease, what that means for a warming gulf and, and, and whatnot. But we really don't know 
really what an indicator for all of the fisheries men and women and people down the road like boat builders, fuel, bait sellers, all of those things. So there's some researchers that are really trying to tra trying to tackle something, um, some indicators of change from that side, which I think is really exciting. And, and we really need when it comes to sort of managing this fishery as a whole from the outside and thinking about the Northeast in a changing environment, not just the lobster and the resource, but what it means for the people that rely on it, which I think is really cool. So an indicator of change, um, I'm thinking, you know, we've talked about temperature and pH and sort of the biological pieces are important indicators of change in the potential life cycle. Um, and, and sort of geography of where lobsters settle to the bottom. What would be some indicators of change from a human perspective, from a social science perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and one that's a really good example is thinking about um, distance from shore that fishermen have to travel to make the same amount of catch as they would normally. Thinking about fuel prices and prices for bait and thinking about kind of the cost benefit of traveling more or um, spending more time um, on your boat to try and, you know, as I think we've sort of touched on as the fishery moves offshore or moves into deeper waters with a changing environment, you gotta go where they're, they're gonna be, right? So what's the cost associated to chasing that? Do you need to buy a bigger boat to go farther offshore? Do you need more crew? Can you pay for that? So kind of thinking about sort of the economic side of what it, what it actually costs to follow this fishery as it responds to a changing environment. Mm -hmm. So the indicators the biological indicators of change may end up snowballing into affecting social indicators of change and vice versa. Yeah, and I think we're thinking about a changing environment. So from temperature changes in ocean chemistry, but there are a lot of other changes going on with the fishery. And um, I think another thing that's really great about the initiative from sort of like that 10,000 foot view is that we're trying to build this network and this structure for people to really connect with industry members to hear what kinds of questions and challenges they're facing, whether that's how do I understand what the new changes to my gear, what is that gonna mean when we have to think about right whale entanglements and, and navigating that, or how much is it gonna cost to get more bait if we have a herring shortage or you know those kinds of things as well. So I think it's, it's really great because it helps tackle a lot of the um, environmental questions, but it also sets the stage for a lot of really excellent follow-up questions to really sort of dive into all of the different aspects of, of environmental change, whether that be the biology, the economy, or even just thinking about social well-being and how lobstermen are dealing with, with all of these hardships that they're, they're facing at the same time. Um, so you have handed me a perfect question to begin to wind us down, which is asking each of you, what are the key takeaways about the importance of your work and the results that you're looking for in terms of helping inform lobster management and sort of the sustainability of the lobster industry into the future? Alex. So as we were saying earlier on, um, Recruitment is just such a sensitive part of um, many marine organisms' um, life cycles. 
and small changes to recruitment can have really big, big uh, influences on future population health. And recruitment is when they the lobsters settle to the bottom yes. and move to the next phase as the lobsters as we know them. Exactly. And so really, I mean, my work can really be summed up as uh, trying to understand what is affecting recruitment and what's changing in the current environment to affect recruitment. Uh, and the hope there is that through a better understanding of lobster larval recruitment, uh, it can act like a sort of crystal ball. Because um, from the time that they recruit, it takes them about seven years to uh, be large enough to be fished. So if we have a really, really good understanding of recruitment, and potentially we have an idea of what the lobster population will look like seven years from now. Thank you. Andrew? So in a warming ocean, what we're noticing is that the release of, um, or the hatching of lobsters from egg that are being carried by their mothers occurs earlier in the year and over a shorter time frame. So you can have um, egg hatching down east that occurs, you know, somewhat a month or so later than it would say down in Rhode Island. And as conditions change, the Gulf of Maine is going to experience, quick, you know, hatching that occurs earlier and earlier in the year. And Will that match up with different ocean currents, different ocean conditions, and how will that impact where these larvae end up? Will it impact their connectivity to uh, when food is available? There are a lot of open questions, but it does seem that change is happening. It's producing a real change, and we're trying our best to try to incorporate all these different dynamics into understanding how change is affecting larvae from egg until when they're competent to settle, like Alex mentioned. Mm -hmm. Great, thanks. Ben. So I, I'm going to grossly preface this by saying that you know we're, we're one year into our two-year project. And so any of our, our data sets are just incredibly incomplete. Um, and some of the analyses haven't been run yet. So for some of like the biochemical stuff we're doing with the larvae after they swim, those are just waiting for all the samples to get processed. So I have no idea what those data are going to say. Um, I think one of the things that we're looking at is that we are in fact seeing differences in preference, in temperature preference between egg bearing females and females without eggs. Uh, and that that's very interesting because it implies both that they're able to tell, you know, what different temperatures are. And because these animals are large enough and mobile enough that they can go for a walk to somewhere they'd rather be. So temperature makes a big difference and plays a role in regulating lobster populations broadly, but it might even be more so than we appreciate to the point that it will drive distributions of males and females to different places and even females with eggs to places that are different from females without eggs. And knowing that sort of information gives us a better idea of where to look uh, if we need to know what the state of, you know, egg-bearing female biomass is, for, for example. So having an idea of where to go with that, and then that will also aid in forecasting how things might go in future because we'll have a better idea of where the eggs are hatching. Uh, which then drives the whole rest of the life cycle potentially 
And um, Amalia, um, can you help us understand how some of this research um, really makes a difference in the future of the lobster industry, which makes up so much of our coastal economy? Yeah, so I think, you know, everybody's kind of spoken to the fact that there's still a lot that we don't know about lobster, but there's a lot that we do. And I think integrating and communicating what's learned from these projects can help people feel like they have a better understanding of, you know, what it means to be a lobsterman, what your resource is doing, how it's going to respond. And so I think that that might give a little bit more when it comes to understanding resilience. So it'll help play into that. Um, I think what's really great about the extension side of the American Lobster Initiative is that we have folks um, from all of the different Northeast Extension offices that are really on the ground talking with industry members. So they're trying to develop that two-way street to help with conversation and go back and forth and really facilitate these connections and try to be, like I said at the beginning, the sort of like the person in between the research and the end users. And so I think what's really valuable about this project as a whole when it comes to the research is yes, we're, we're answering a lot of questions that are extremely relevant to thinking about how we sustain this fishery from both a biological, scientific, and economic perspective, but it also helps keep this kind of notion and identity of the fisherman's kind of way of life that lobster really brings to the Northeast and really makes our region truly unique. Um, and I think that, you know, by having this network in place, we're trying to, at least down the road, really make this a really strong collaboration across the Northeast to really keep moving forward and, and answering these difficult questions, but incorporating everybody's voices and perspectives so we have a more robust approach to really understanding how this fishery is going to change in, in the context of climate change. And to kind of go off of that, um, the impetus for all our research is understanding lobster larvae and changing environment. Um, in my mind, it, that's true, but it kind of gets at the fact that we're trying to be proactive rather than reactive. Understand change before it's too late. And on that cautionary note, we've come to the end of our hour on Coastal Conversations this month on WERU Community Radio. Thanks so much to all four of our guests today for helping us understand a little more about the complex life cycle of the American lobster and for clarifying the role of research in helping tease out the impacts of a changing environment on the state's most lucrative marine resource. Our guests today were Andrew Good, a PhD candidate in oceanography at the University of Maine, his was the last voice you just heard there, along with the occasional cameo sounds from his three-year-old. Alex Asher, a PhD student in marine biology at the University of Maine, Dr. Ben Gutzler, a postdoctoral researcher at the Wells National Estuarine Research Reserve, and Dr. Amalia Harrington, a marine extension associate with Maine Sea Grant and the Northeast Regional Lobster Extension Project Coordinator. Thanks so much to all four of you and best of luck as you move deeper into your research. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. 
And we also encourage you to listen to our sister program, Talk of the Towns, with host Ron Beard from 4 to 5 on the second Wednesday of each month. The Coastal Conversations theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend.